This is an ABC podcast. This is Science Friction. Hey, welcome. I'm Natasha Mitchell. We are asking you to think like a science fiction writer today, to extend your imagination to the impossible to imagine. Ty Frank is one half of the writing duo behind the blockbuster series The Expanse. Have you seen it? Have you read it? Yes, six seasons of TV shows, nine books. It is huge. And Carl Schrader is a futurist and science fiction writer whose most recent novels include Stealing Worlds and The Million, amongst other books. And we're imagining what the world, well, actually the entire galaxy and maybe beyond, could look like if energy was cheap, it was clean, and unlimited in supply. How might that reshape our civilization, our relationships to each other? Energy is that powerful. Last episode, we heard from one of the starry-eyed startup businesses having a red-hot go at making nuclear fusion a reality at a commercial scale, backed by billionaires like Bill Gates. Today, science friction's Erica Vols is blending fusion, fact and fantasy. You know, I, I grew up watching Star Trek like everybody else. And, you know, these zip around between stars like the stars are right next to each other. The stars are still really far apart and it's really hard to leave the solar system. But there is a ton of stuff in the solar system, places we could colonize. That idea really resonated with me as a kid. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of um, tiny little worlds out there, most of them unknown, possibly up to Earth size, floating silent and dark between the stars, but as possible homes for humanity, because with nuclear energy or fusion energy, you can create perfectly warm habitats anywhere, including on worlds between the stars. I've always found that a very interesting place to set stories because nobody writes about it. Carl Schrader is a futurist and author of several sci-fi novels, including Permanence and Lockstep, both focused on civilizations that use fusion energy to travel and live in space. There is a long tradition of nuclear fusion being used uh, as propulsion in science fiction. Carl says that one of the first authors to explore the role that fusion energy could play is American novelist Larry Niven. One of his uh, short stories called The Warriors, which was published in 1966, has an alien race with a massive uh, fleet of warships converging on a tiny set of human spacecraft and they determine that the humans are unarmed they have no weapons but they're using these fusion drives well that's okay that's, we don't have to worry about that and then the humans turn the ships around and turn on the drives and uh, the incoming fleet dissolves in the blast of energy <laughs> his point being that a working nuclear fusion drive is also a working weapon of mass destruction yeah, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> it's not something that you would want to use near Earth. <laughs> you wouldn't launch a rocket into space using nuclear fusion, and you probably wouldn't travel around, uh, you know, at our usual satellite level with something like that. This is for vast distances. That's correct, yes. But it's those vast distances that are really interesting, particularly to science fiction writers, uh, because uh, if you can uh, travel to places like Mars and the moons of Jupiter, then uh, all kinds of new possibilities open up. New possibilities for all kinds of new human civilizations. 
I think the best known example of uh, using nuclear fusion in, in science fiction is uh, The Expanse. Uh, which has been a, a fantastically successful series of novels and, uh, and TV series. The Expanse series by James S.A. Corey, the pen name of Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, are regulars on the New York Times bestseller list. As a reader, I find their stories about humans living and working in the outer solar system gritty and believable. Thrillingly, travelling to the asteroid belt and way beyond is doable, because in this world, fusion is a bountiful and powerful source of energy. But it's bittersweet, because colonising other planets creates conflict. And I'm going straight to the source, to co-author and creator of The Expanse, Ty Frank. And this idea that at some point, the rich planets, the inner planets, and the poor planets, which are everything else, would wind up in a war. Ty Frank says his stories reflect Earth's own history, where conflict between European colonisers and liberated colonies never really goes away. And that's really sort of where the expanse begins is the rich inner planets have been misusing the poor but resource-rich outer planets for decades or hundreds of years, and a war is brewing between the two. In the expanse, humanity has settled the entire solar system using nuclear fusion initially very slowly and painfully until the the discovery of uh, modification basically a hot rod version of it called the epstein drive and particularly in the in the tv version you get to see just what an impact it has when you're capable of hot rodding around the 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 solar system in one of these uh, vessels taking just a few weeks to travel between the planets and uh, shipping giant cargoes and things like that. For science fiction, what that does for you, it allows you to uh, tell a story uh, that's basically a, a, a nautical romance, uh, complete with, uh, you know, piracy and uh, feuding nations and, and, and ship battles and so forth, but on the grand scale of the, the solar system itself. So it, it, it's a wonderful conceit to build a story around. The whole universe in the expanse hangs off fusion. Spaceships are fuelled by it. But initially, travel is still slow. Then along comes a plucky but easily distracted fusion engineer called Solomon Epstein, who risks all and changes everything. So Mars has a small colony on it. The moon has a small colony on it. You know, there's, there's the beginnings of expansion, but it is very limited by distance and time. And he has this idea for a way that you can dramatically improve both the output and efficiency of a fusion reactor drive. And his idea is that if, if it works, everybody will just use fusion drives and then the solar system becomes very small. You can get, you can get to the outer planets, you can get to the asteroid belt, you can get to some of these places much more quickly and, and suddenly everything becomes more economically viable for both at colonization and exploitation. The fuel that we burn with chemical rockets doesn't provide very much thrust and gets used up really quickly. The idea of nuclear fusion is that uh, it burns for a fantastically long time with a tiny amount of fuel producing a vast amount of energy and hopefully enough thrust to get us where we're going. So we can go further, we can go faster, and in the long run, we can go cheaper everywhere in the solar system. 
So Solomon Epstein, he's taking his flight to test out his kind of newly souped up fusion drive. What happens? I had a dream in which I was at the pizza place that we used to go to when I was a kid. And they would play cartoons and old black and white movies from like the 20s and 30s. And I remember my favorite short video clip was one that just showed everybody who had invented a new flying machine and then watching that flying machine spectacularly crash. (laughs) The Wright brothers obviously had flown their plane, but everybody was trying to figure out the next way to do it. So there were things with like steam piston powered umbrellas that moved up and down. They thought that would get them into the air. Tons of different versions of what they thought would be a helicopter sorts of like weird rocket powered things and they all just failed Mm -hmm. and in my head uh it just got mixed in with this idea of space flight is new personal space flight is new that the, the idea that a person who has some money could afford to buy a small spaceship mixed with this idea of all these crazy people from the 20s trying to make the next airplane and and just blowing up and those two ideas mixed together in a guy Solomon Epstein. Solomon is a genius, but he's not very bright. He's he's a genius in that he has figured out this amazing tweak to the fusion drive technology that's going to make them much faster, much more efficient. And he doesn't do basic safety checks. Yes. <laughs> and so he winds up activating his drive and he's a Martian, so he's, you know, he's used to living under much lower gravity than than people on Earth. So he's he's weaker. And when the ship takes off at high G, he can't move. With nowhere to stop and and the forces that are kind of pressing him into his chair, essentially it's not a good fate for Solomon. No, it's not, but it's a great way, you know, to uh, become immortal in the sense that the Greeks used to use the term. He's stuck, he's pinned inside of his ship and realizes that his drive is so efficient now that by the time he runs out of fuel and, and the acceleration stops, he will be dead. I picture, you know, uh, the the Wright brothers taking off in their plane, realizing it works, realizing that the future of humanity has just changed because of the thing they invented. And then what if that plane had crashed and they had died? And so I, I picture that moment of, I just changed everything. I just changed the future of humanity. Everything will be different from now on because of me and I won't get to live to see it. If he had control, he could reach the asteroid belt. He could go to the Jovian system and be the first person to walk on Europa and Ganymede. He isn't going to though, that's going to be someone else. But when they get there, they will be carried by his drive. And the war, if distance is measured in time, Mars just got very close to Earth, while Earth is still very distant from Mars. That kind of asymmetry changes everything. He wonders how they'll negotiate that, what they'll do, All the lithium and molybdenum and tungsten anyone could want is within reach of mining companies now. They can go to the asteroid belt and the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. The thing that kept Earth and Mars from ever reaching a lasting peace isn't going to matter anymore. The next few years, decades even, are going to be fascinating and it will be because of him. He closes his eyes. He wishes he could be there to see it all happen. Solomon relaxes and the expanse folds itself around him like a lover. As a younger man, I was a, a I was educated in, in the Bible. I, I'm not religious now, but at the time, I was as part of a very conservative religious group. And religious imagery often gets mixed in with 
when I think about stories. And so I had this image of, you know, the idea of Moses gets to see the Holy Land, but he never gets to go into it. And that, that idea of being on top of this mountain, you know, Solomon's on top of the mountain. He's looking across the river at the future of humanity, knowing what it will look like and never getting to go across the river and live there with everybody else. The thing that's important for humanity is that his wife back home on Mars has got the schematics of the ship and the drive. And from that point, how does that kind of change the situation in the solar system? You know, before that, it took months to get between Earth and Mars. And then you've got this Epstein drive. How does that kind of turbocharge exploration of the solar system? Well, the analogy that they're using with the Epstein drive is similar to the invention of coal for shipping in the uh, 19th century. And then with the arrival of fast airplanes and transoceanic flights, people could go to places like Australia or Africa, or you know, you could go from Europe to America on a whim as a vacation. And it just opens up, it opened up the world. And in the same way, Solomon's much more efficient and faster drive opens up the solar system. And what was previously a set of small, isolated communities in the asteroid belt, the, the Belter Society, suddenly gets an invasion of fast travelers from all over the solar system. Rather like um, my experience using the internet in the, the early 1990s when it was a a small thing run by universities. And then suddenly America Online arrived <laughs> and millions of people were there. It's it's the same kind of experience and it completely changes um, all the dynamics of power within the solar system. And that's the thing about technology, isn't it? That technology will come along and it will kind of shift the way human beings organize themselves. Yes, technology uh, changes fundamentally the way that uh, we organize our societies and we're undergoing such a shift right now. It is now the case that renewables are less expensive than fossil fuels for almost any purpose. This changes everything because our entire um, industrial civilization is based on and our politics is based on the scarcity of fossil fuels and the necessity to move them around the planet in a particular way. When you introduce re renewables, uh, and this would be the same thing if we achieve nuclear fusion, suddenly you don't have petrostates anymore. You don't have some countries being oil rich and others being uh, oil poor and energy rich and energy poor. Suddenly everyone is energy rich. Technology is always the genie in the bottle. And once you let it out, you can never put it back in the bottle again. We can never live in a world that doesn't know how to make nuclear weapons. That world is gone and will never come back. And so we, now we have to live in a world where people do know how to make nuclear weapons. We have to try to figure out a way for humanity to survive in a world that has that knowledge. And so that is the terrible thing about technology. You know, We're always trying to learn new things. We're always trying to expand what we know. That's a very human drive. And I don't think that's a, that's a negative. I think that's a positive in humans. But it does open a few bottles and let a few genies out that we probably wish we hadn't, if we had a do-over. But there's no way to know that until it happens. 
You know, for me, technology and science in the expanse in both your books and the TV series, it's there. It's got a bit of heft to it. Some of it's a bit implausible, but you don't bore people with the endless details of how. Some fans have picked apart the drive and tried to work out whether it could ever work. And there's some conjecture on that front, I would say. And I'm just wondering, Ty, could you explain to me how the Epstein drive would work in theory? Very efficiently. (laughs) That's it? Very efficiently. I have my idea for what it's doing. It is not a thing that we could make now. It's not even a thing that we could theorize how it would work now. I'm never going to explain it. It's it's definitely wildly wrong. So here's here's the, the sad truth about science fiction writers. We love speculating about future technology and we are terrible at it. The, the track record of sci-fi writers getting the future right is abysmal. But sometimes they do get it right. Occasionally, very, very, very occasionally. And I mean, you got the whole story about Arthur C. Clarke positing uh, communication satellites. That one definitely turned out to be true. You know, the whole Jules Verne and submarines. And there's a few times where we'll say, hey, what, wouldn't it be cool if this thing was true? And then somehow magically we accidentally got it right and it did turn out to be true. But most of the time, it is desperately wrong. Do you think there have been any kind of flow-on effects around you in terms of people thinking more about fusion energy and the possible of fusion drives, or dare I say it, fusion energy reactors today in our world, down here on Earth in the gravity well? <laughs> I, I don't know. And I, 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 I think there is nothing more arrogant than saying my books have changed the world. But we have fans who are engineers, and I've talked to fans who are uh, you know, aerospace engineers and and you know rocket scientists, and they say, "Oh yeah, I've got this idea." I, I I like the way that you talk about the fusion drive in the expanse made me think of this thing, and I wonder if we could do something with that. And you don't know what that flow effect is going to be. It might be nothing, or it might lead to something really interesting. I think the 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 expanse has been extremely um, influential and has sparked the imaginations of a lot of people who are going to do some uh, pretty amazing things with uh, this and related technologies in, in the near future. The, the expanse makes the idea of space colonization romantic again. But fusion energy has moved well beyond the realm of science fiction. As we explored last episode, scientists are making great strides with fusion experiments now. And billionaire investors like Bill Gates and George Soros are backing fusion energy startups as part of their investment in technology that could decarbonise the economy. And nuclear fusion doesn't have the radioactive waste problem of nuclear fission. Fusion is the reverse of fission where giant atoms explode and and fire neutrons all over the place. With nuclear fusion, we work very, very hard to push atoms together so that they join into a slightly larger atom, giving off energy in the process. This is a huge advantage in a lot of ways over over fission because it's extremely difficult to do and and can't easily be uh, uh, weaponized, for instance. And uh, if done properly, gives us a limitless energy source with a tiny little footprint that uh, could power humanity for literally millions of years. Last episode, we looked at the prospects for fusion energy becoming a reality in our world. Because if it could, this would give us energy without the climate impacts of fossil fuels. 
leaving aside travel to distant fictional spacescapes, what do these two science fiction writers think about fusion energy powering our homes, like for real? Do they think this will happen soon? Or is it still 50 years away? I think that a lot of people are investing a lot of money to make it happen a lot sooner than 50 years from now. So yeah, it is going to happen pretty quickly because the, the, the physics part is, is basically solved. It's, it's an engineering issue now. Humans always kind of find a way to figure it out. And we're shockingly flexible in the ways that we attack problems and figure things out. Now, where I bet against humans is, is will we be smart in how we apply it? Will we be smart in how we make use of it so we don't, you know, set ourselves on fire? Eh, I don't always bet on humans on that side. But just in figuring out how things work and how to make things once we understand the science of things, humans are pretty freaking clever. Do I think it's going to happen in my lifetime? I don't know. Maybe. Depends on, it depends on how, how long I can keep this old carcass rolling along. <laughs> Well, the irony with nuclear fusion is that it would have saved the world if it were rolled out 30 years ago. It is going to happen, but it is very big science, uh, very high tech. By the time it arrives, renewable energies are going to be so cheap, so pervasive and so locked in that we just won't need it. So once again, we turn back to space. Space becomes the final frontier. It's where it, uh, it can blossom and finally come into its own. I see fusion energy being touted sometimes as a possible solution to climate change. That worries me because fusion energy is always 50 years away and we so don't have 50 years. Do you have any thoughts either way on that? I do. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with what you just said. And, uh, we like, the, we like the idea of the quantum leap forward, but it almost never is like that. So yeah, let's, let's, let's dream about fusion. Let's, let's try to figure out that problem. Let's, let's see if we can eventually engineer a solution to it. But while we're doing that, let's put up some wind farms. You know, let's put up some, some solar panels. Let's invest in uh, battery systems for renewable energy to keep the grid going when the wind and the sun aren't shining. Let's invest in those technologies because we know how to do those things and we can do them right now. So let's work on that and keep the dream of fusion alive. It's funny because I, I don't think that nuclear fusion is going to end up playing much of a role in mitigating climate change. I think we have all the tools that we need already to be able to do that. And I think it is going to happen. Um, I've been spending a lot of work on my futurist side, working uh, on, on these issues and I'm extremely optimistic now. I think what nuclear fusion is going to do is surprise us with an unanticipated use for it that is going to be transformative in and of itself, such as the uh, complete disintegration of garbage to uh, enable a, uh, a circular economy. Is this one of these cases where we won't really know what we've got until we have it in our hands? I guess it's up to the next generation of science fiction writers to figure out what the surprise in nuclear fusion is actually going to be. Futurist and science fiction author Carl Schrader there speaking with Erica Vols and before him Ty Frank from the blockbuster Expanse science fiction series of books and TV shows. 
Now, some big news from me. I adore making science fiction for you each week. It's a dream job, let's face it. But I also adore new challenges and change. And so I'm taking up another dream job, presenting Big Ideas, which brings you a whole smorgasbord of the best talks, forums, debates, conversations from events and festivals across Australia and the world. Long-time and much-loved host Paul Barclay has decided to hang up his headphones after a decade in the chair and 31 years at the ABC. How's that? And I got the gig. Very excited about that. So I'll catch you over on the Big Ideas podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love radio, you can catch Big Ideas nightly, Monday to Thursday at 8pm on ABC RN across Australia. And it's on Radio Australia across the Pacific too. On Science Friction, over the next six shows, I'm bringing you a special series, Real Wild Child. A series of staggering childhood stories that I've gathered for Science Friction over the years. Then Science Friction will be back with a new season later on in 2023, brought to you by the ABC Science team. So stay posted for that. The show is produced by me and Erica Vols. Find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and I'm on email, mitchell.natasha at abc.net.au. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.